Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Range of Capital podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. And with me, as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Today, we're going to start by talking about the most expensive proxy fight in history. And then we're going to move on to talk about Netflix's growing streaming ambitions. So, Chris, the most expensive proxy fight in history, Procter & Gamble versus Trian slash Nelson Peltz. The fight happened last week. Procter & Gamble today, they're declaring victory in their battle. Their director with the least number of votes received 48.9% of the votes. That's about 979 million votes versus Nelson Peltz at 48.3% with 973 million. Trian and Peltz, they're kind of refusing to give up, saying that the company is declaring victory far too early. There were a bunch of proxies that were kind of mailed in in paper form that they're saying, hey, you couldn't have possibly counted these up yet. So, you know, it's an unusual situation in a lot of different ways. The way it's most unusual is kind of most firms who were facing a proxy contest that was coming this close would kind of say, hey, enough of our shareholders want this guy on the board. We might as well give him a seat because, you know, it's kind of not like a presidential election where the guy with 51% beats the guy with 49% and he can declare victory. If 49% of your shareholders want you out next year, they might buy a little more and they might have 51% and vote you out then. So you kind of try to make them all happy. So I'll turn it over to you. What do you think about the proxy fight? Why do you think PG is so reluctant to put pelts on? And kind of where does everyone go from here? Every lawyer wins, whether the PNG or pelts. This has been a good process uh, and an expensive process for them. Close votes always go to the vote counter. And that's not even making any accusation of maliciousness. When things are very close, it will always stagger back and forth depending on when you call it. And so you just call it when you have the conclusion that you like. I think that might have happened here. But gee, if you have 49%, shouldn't you get one twelfth of the board? I mean, I would put pelts in the board simply because the best activists, and I would include him among that group, are good directors. He's smart. He's aligned. He's proved that he's focused on this and is willing to work hard. I would sooner demand that such a person uh, sits on the board than I would to bar him from it. Yeah. And the thing is, incumbents have such a big advantage, right? They get to mail out their proxies through all the normal channels. They kind of control a lot of the messaging, a lot of the things that are filed with the SEC. In PNG's case, I think they got to vote like 7 or 8% of their shares that were held in the employees fund for them. Instinctively, a lot of mutual funds and everything will vote with management. So for P&G's management to say, hey, there's this big, really well-respected activist who owns a lot of our shares, who wants one board seat, it's it's just very surprising to me that they push back, especially when this many shareholders were saying, hey, we want him on your board. It's a very old, very big company and organizations of that type have as its primary task defending the organization. Big businesses become over time a lot like big government and its soul is that of a bureaucracy. It's good at self-preservation and avoiding change. And there's probably nothing he could have said as an activist that would have convinced them to let him on if they didn't think he had the votes. And I guess he, he didn't have the votes. Yeah. You wonder if PNG was kind of thinking, hey, if we let this guy in, kind of the bull is in the China shop and just everything's going to get broken. But, you know, looking forward, I can't help but wonder, okay, PNG management, PNG board, you won this fight, but I can't help but wonder if things don't go perfectly from here, did you lose the war and are all of you going to be getting replaced in 12 months? Because, you know, at this point, I feel like your feet are held to the fire. You just spent tens of millions of dollars to keep one of your major shareholders who had huge support 
off of your board. If you don't, you know, a lot of the accusations were organic growth is lagging peers, you're losing market share. If you don't start turning that around quickly, 12 months from now, I wouldn't be surprised if Peltz isn't just coming for one seat. He's coming for three seats. He's coming for six seats. He's coming to replace the whole board and fire management. He's coming to break PNG up because, you know, at this point, you spent a lot of money to keep him off. You better deliver something. Yeah, because, I mean, it's already a slightly larger board than average. It's 11. The average is nine. And so one twelfth of the board was fairly modest. I mean, a lot about this activity has been modest. It's been, uh, you know, what he exactly he wanted was fairly ambiguous. You know, in his uh, white paper, he goes through this long list of things he's not asking for on the normal kind of bill of goods that an activist brings to the table. And if you look at where activists really succeed, activists mostly unlock value by pressuring companies to sell and collect the control premium. That's where most activists make their money. And this kind of was an effort to use subtle in something that's not a subtle tool. And so, you know, I look at what he really focused on, organic growth, regaining market share. These are normally not the things where there's an agency problem, where the people running the business are holding back value. And so that was a little weaker than usual. Also, the stock has beaten the S&P since the current CEO took the job. That's a very crude measure. But I find that shareholders tend to be really forgiving about CEOs who outperform, even if they should have outperformed even more, and punitive towards ones that underperform, even if they are did brilliant things that prevented it from being even worse. So it's good enough for most shareholders, including so many that are sleepy, you know, pension funds, unmanaged index funds, and just ones willing to go along. It's good enough. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think management did get a little bit of support from good enough, as you're saying. But, you know, to me, if I was a shareholder, if I was the management team, like I would be taking the a lot of these charges very seriously because, you know, a, a lot of the whole CPG company ecosystem has been built on the advantages of, of scale, right? The advantages of, hey, we can afford TV marketing that smaller people can't afford. Hey, we can get into Walmart and kind of upstart brands can't get into Walmart. Hey, if there is an upstart brand, we can go buy them because they need our distribution channels. And when I look at things, we've talked about Dollar Shave Club before, you know, that's a billion dollar brand that was started that competes with P&G's big Gillette brand. They took tons of share from Gillette and that was started with an online viral video. You know, you, you look at Kylie Jenner who launched a $300 million makeup brand on the back of her Instagram account popularity. You know, you look at these things and you're saying, hey, there are a lot of changes going on here that if the giants aren't aware of it, these market share, like this trickle of a loss can kind of turn into a stream. I worry two, three years from now, if they're losing share at rates that are unimaginable today. And these startups are moving at a pace faster than the tempo of the giants, than the tempo that they have board meetings and that they can kind of respond to these things. You have a bigger problem than you can handle as soon as you realize you have a problem. And that's why I wonder, you know, if getting the bull in the China shop, if I was a shareholder, if I would be really encouraging, if I'd really look well upon that, because things are moving quickly in today's world and P&G even though its stock has done well, its organic growth is lagging. It seems like these rivals are really starting to make a dent. 
the forward-looking vision might not be as rosy, but I'm not an expert. I don't know. That's just my outside thoughts. Any last thoughts here before we turn to Netflix? It kind of segues well into our next topic, actually. Yeah, yeah. So let's turn to Netflix. Netflix reported earnings last night, and look, growth continues on all fronts. But what's really catching a lot of headlines is that they're really forecasting a ton in content costs going forward. They said, hey, next year, we'll probably spend about $8 billion on original programming. And this is a figure so large that media mogul Barry Diller said it's hard to imagine how they could even pull it off. He said something along the lines of, they're going to have to have monkeys do it. There's not enough talent to produce that much content. But Diller also suggested that the boat has passed for competing with Netflix. He really said Netflix and maybe Amazon are so far ahead of everyone else that there's just no catching them. Other people kind of disagree. They say, hey, Disney's already said they're rolling out a streaming service in 2019. Hulu just won an Emmy for Best Drama. And Apple's actually going to spend a billion dollars on content over the next year. So, Chris, what do you think about the huge Netflix spend? Are they just kind of out of everyone's league or is this something that they're spending? They're going to be hiring monkeys and people who are willing to do more targeted spending can catch them. They've been doing well growing their subscriber base with their original programming. But $8 billion, I mean, they've been doing shows like The Queen. With $8 billion, they could hire the actual Queen of England just to play (laughs) herself, just buy Buckingham Palace and use that as the set. And I mean, that's just so much money to have to spend at once. But Barry Diller's right. Barry Diller's been right about a lot of things. These guys are way out ahead of anybody other than Amazon. You take the kind of the usual suspects of who could cut into them. Disney will try, but it'll be tough. And it's going to be really brutal for those in the business of licensing outside programs, kind of Hollywood content. Based on what we read about Hollywood recently, I don't feel that sorry for them. But I think that this is a big kind of competitive advantage that Netflix is building in. Yeah, you know, the numbers are just mind boggling to me on so many fronts. So they're going to spend $8 billion a year. But when I look at Netflix, I see something like, hey, for they're increasing their prices for $12 a month now or something, you can get this huge library that really rivals what you can get on pay TV for, you know, most people pay 50, 60, 70, $80 for their monthly pay TV. Outside of sports, you can get, in a lot of cases, better content on Netflix. You can watch it on your own terms whenever you want. You can watch wherever you want. Whereas with pay TV, you kind of have to watch what they're showing at the time they're showing with ads, you know, like the value proposition for Netflix is just insane. So on that sense, it's insane to me. But on the other sense, I look at some of the numbers they're throwing around and it kind of reminds me of a little bit of Elon Musk with the Tesla numbers. Like on their call, Netflix said, hey, this year we did eight original movies on Netflix. Next year, we want to do 80, like increasing their movie content by 10 times. The whole movie industry only puts out about 600 movies per year. So they're going to go from being 1% to more than 10% of it. Like the numbers are just mind boggling to me. But Netflix is really developing its own genre in terms of the historical, what is it on average, 90 minutes or so when you go out to a movie theater is really based on the movie theater experience. And now the Netflix mini series, kind of the extended movie kind of time frame works really well for binging or for watching at kind of specific times. I flip it on when I'm working out in my gym. And so you kind of have these different increments of time people use. So you can spend more money, you can put out more hours, you can do more more with that, with the kind of Netflix kind of a series of format. And it just fits really well, both with the technology in terms of when and how people use it, and then just kind of seamless between devices. You know, you have one TV, one where it's a place you use a tablet or a phone. I 
think they're able to do it. I mean, they're going to have to uh, run through a lot of stories, but I think it's it's possible. Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing is Netflix was really the, I think they were kind of the first people to figure out like, hey, you buy content and you buy content and it leverages across the entire world if you can show that, right? You know, House of Cards even, I, I think there was a story the other day where Russia, their hackers that they hired to influence the election, they made them watch House of Cars to kind of see what the American hot button political issues were. Things like that. It really does spread. If you get House of Cards, if you get a Stranger Things, you can dub it and you can export it to India. You know, a lot of the Japanese anime is popular here. So they invest in the Netflix Japan and they bring it here. It's really, they really know how to leverage global scale. On both ends of the bell curve of outcomes, the crap you can usually now make your money back internationally and the bonanzas you can make even more i mean so it makes it this really kind of good bet to be putting out uh, new content once you have that kind of distribution yeah the last thing i'll mention i think the other place that people miss when they see these huge content numbers is they miss the netflix technology like now that they have 100 million users they've got so much more technologies both in terms of what their users like to watch and their streaming service my understanding is it's so much more efficient than every rival streaming service in terms of delivering content content to you efficiently. Like when you combine those two things, the moat that Netflix is building is huge. It's getting bigger. They're spending way more than everyone, but they're going to be able to spend it a lot more efficiently. Now, again, can they spend $8 billion efficiently is kind of crazy, but man, just the management team here, it is just a story for the ages. I'll turn it over to you for last thoughts. I don't think this should be a regulatory issue. And just hearkening back to some of the things that Barry Diller was saying, I think that you could have a world that's made up of Amazon and Netflix subscriptions and Google and Facebook ads and not that many others. And it's still kind of good for the little guy. If you put a trivial value on your time, Amazon and Netflix especially are great bargains compared to any other era of video. Even after the price hikes, throw out some dollar figure you place in your time and save going to a video store or even putting in a cassette. It's a good value for the entertainment you get. And in terms of these other kind of massive, massive companies on the ad side, yeah, they're dominating their market, but they're not really abusing that market. Also, small guys can use those ads in a way that you could never advertise before and grow small businesses. So I think that this is great for customers. I think it's great for small guys. And I am so far at least not concerned with how they're using what is growing closer and closer to monopolies. So I I think this is a topic for another day. I I don't think Netflix is not where the regulatory concern, but I, I am concerned like Facebook, just the ownership of the user identity and profile, I do think there's going to be increasing concerns. And when you look at how Facebook, Twitter, Google, how they responded to uh, the 2016 political campaign and how they've responded to the questions about it so far, I think they were wholly unaware of just how much power they were wielding. And I do think there's going to be questions about that going forward. But I mean, Netflix, look, it's a subscription you sign up for. There's plenty of content other places, like not just series, YouTube, everything else. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think Netflix is ever going to have a regulatory issue, but who knows? Crazier things have happened. Uh, you want the last word or are we kind of wrapped it. up there? Great. So that's all the time we have for today. Just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, the best way to get more of them is to recommend us to a friend and get them to start listening. Uh, Chris, Chris, disclosures. I think we are both long a Netflix subscription. But aside from that, that's pretty much it. Sadly, no other disclosures. (laughs) Great. Talk to you guys soon.